Miss Abramson, it's great that you're interested in one of our internships. You've picked a great time to come in because two of our interns recently died from rage virus caused by the chimp experiments on the second floor. Now, I see that you have some prior experience in newspapers. So what draws you to this work in public radio? My background is very much as an investigative reporter, and I am always drawn to what I call the story behind the story. I mean, I love news. I'm a competitive uh, journalist and love to hop on stories. And how do you see yourself fitting in with our newsroom? What kind of work do you like to do? You know, I'm just incredibly curious. Uh, and that that in some ways fuels, I can get interested in almost anything. And I think, you know, many journalists are a little like that. Uh, mm, well, we'd like our interns to take some initiative. So give me a sense of a story that you might work on for us. The story that happened behind the falling apart of the city opera, like why it had to go bankrupt. Now, you're coming to us as kind of a second career move, and we love that. Um, So tell me one of the lessons you'll bring from your previous job. It's really dangerous to become captive to your sources, and that when an echo chamber develops, uh, pushing a certain line or interpretation of an event... You know, I'm just going to interrupt you right there, because there's something I really need to ask you about. I'm trying to picture the headache I would get every day listening to you talk. It's like some Neolithic version of vocal fry. Why do you insist on speaking that way? Because it shapes, I think, my personality and very much who I am. Okay, well, we're going to give you some very serious consideration, but I have to be candid and say it'll probably come down to you and Red Skull from the Captain America movie, and he's a monthly donor. Meanwhile, you should listen to the nose discuss your recent firing and the new trend of chasing away graduation speakers. And now the host of the new reality show, Celebrity Elevator Fight, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, actually, it's a great show. We don't we, we usually have a celebrity and then the relative of a celebrity uh, have a fight. And actually, it's funny she mentions Red Skull because I think he's on episode three. Uh, I did not, however, know he was a monthly donor here. Uh, all right, so uh, we're here to talk, uh, and we, this is the nose, and that's what we do here. And Irene Papoulis, you can hear her uh, chuckling, uh, her her low throaty chuckle. Uh, she is a professor at Trinity College, also from Trinity Cine Studio. James Hanley, uh, and uh, a wearer of many hats: actress, dance impresario, uh, blogger, writer, comedian. I'm sure I'm leaving, leaving something else out. Carolyn Payne is also here with us. Um, and we are going to start out with this uh, story of the New York Times. When we get uh, to our second segment, you may have seen the recent spate, if there are enough of them to qualify as a spate, uh, of sort of messy divorces between colleges and their intended commencement speakers. So that will be on our plate uh, in the second segment. Right now we are going to talk about this story, which has really blossomed into one of these big, big, messy onions that you keep pulling uh, a layer or two back and finding more onion underneath. It is the uh, story of the dismissal of Jill Abramson. That was her real voice that you just heard uh, here. I had to listen to it. Was it? Oh, I was wondering if it was. That is not somebody doing a Jill Abramson impersonation (laughs) because you cannot do a Jill uh, Abramson. 
Abramson impersonation because that would involve exaggerating characteristics, which are already so exaggerated that you cannot. <laughs> that was, there's oh. nothing to work with. That is how That's she talks. Um, Male hi- hierarchies, watch out. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, um, by the way, as we go along here, and you, if you have an opinion, you have a conspiracy theory, you have an interpretation, give us a call. Don't wait, though, because people call up like right when we're about to jump into the next topic. And that frustrates us because we do want to hear from you. 860-275-7266. I'll say it again. 865 eight, I can't do it. I was going to try to do, see if I could do it as Jill Abramson, but it's too hard to do. Uh, 860-275-7266. Um, I, I like Jill Abramson. I, I don't, I'm sorry that I'm making fun of the way she talks, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's hard not to. Um, I mean, she really does have this very kind of distinct it, – it is like the first vocal fry ever. You know, it's like the caveman – does uh, everybody know what a vocal fry is? I mean, I just found out about a month ago. Oh, we did a whole show about vocal fry, which made oh, people. Okay. Re- it was another show that it enraged people. Uh, but we did we did do a whole show about it. Yeah, but, uh, but once it, you it, hear it, you hear yeah, it everywhere. And, and it's certainly yeah. certainly you hear it in, in Jill. That's what she's doing. Yeah. Um, although it's to match up the speed of your expression with your uh, with 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 your thoughts. Right. You know, it's like to to uh, because. Then that way you're less likely to trip. <laughs> so let, let's go through some of the different scenarios here or some of the different explanations. This announcement was made by the standards of the in- industry pretty abruptly. Uh, the, the kabuki part of it wasn't handled very well. Um, Jill Abramson wasn't there when it was announced. Usually, you know, you have the person there to sort of uh, indicate a certain level of complicitness uh, or at least agreement with whatever's happening. She wasn't in- anywhere to be found. That's unusual for the New York Times. There are other things that made it unusual. So one, one of the first explanations was pretty much a straight up gender equity pay issue. That got floated very early on uh, in the New Yorker, on the New Yorker website by Ken Oletta, who kind of owns this story uh, to the extent that anyone can own it. I'm going to go over to you, Irene, not because I I see you as uh, some kind of reservoir of gender equity pay resentment, but because, although you may be, uh, but because very early on, you really started to, as we say, geek out on this story. Yeah, well... um Actually, I cu- I'll start from the end because when I was driving here, I had this it thing about I real I was thinking she's the Yoko Ono of the New York Times, and I I feel like I want to develop that idea. <laughs> Very good. You know, somebody who and that's not about the pay equity. If you want to yeah. start with the pay equity, we could we could talk about that because if she we don't know, but we don't know how much money she was making. Well, we do now. Actually, we do now. Yeah, we oh, okay, so. Well, yeah, that, that actually there is some reason to suppose that the gender, that, that the pay equity question was legitimate. Some numbers have now been released, uh, and of course, Ken Allett has got them. So as executive editor, her starting salary in 2011 was $475,000. Compared to Bill Keller, her predecessor, uh, he started at five thirty nine. Um, well, there you go. Her salary got raised to five oh three, and then... Uh, only after she protested was raised again to 525. She learned that her salary, well, actually Keller, Keller was at 539. I guess the year that she started. So in other words, he he ended at 539. But he wasn't an executive editor all that long. Anyway, she never got up to where he got. She also learned that when she was managing editor, her salary was 398k, and that was less than that of the male managing editor for news operations, John Geddes. So, and the other thing we know is that she had actually hired a lawyer to kind of help her look into this. Oh, and they didn't like that, and they fired her. I mean, well, how that's does that that's work? one theory. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, actually, it sort of fits with my my overall theory about her being the Yoko Ono because I think that that to me is sort of because it seems like the Uni- the New York Times is this 
you know, organization that's been going on for a long time and it sort of has a whole network of men who have been in charge of it for, you know, forever and it's and they have their ways of doing things and their way that they like things. So they have this woman that comes in as the new managing editor and she has her own ideas and it makes everyone uncomfortable. Part of it is because she's a woman, but part of it is because of her manner that she's not sucking up in the way that you're supposed to. And um, mm. so she's she's sort of doing things her own way, and it makes people uncomfortable. So just like Yoko Ono made people uncomfortable, and I think it's it's partly because she didn't play the game in the way that they expected her to play the game in the way that they... It, I mean, at, at least looking at it from the outside as, as a citizen. Well, that's... You keep hearing... Uh, you know, she was making people uncomfortable in, in reference to her interactions her, with colleagues her, her there. Her brusque manner. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I think that then you're looking at this, then you get into the whole women, when they're in power, if they have a certain demeanor or are no, considered bossy. <laughs> I mean, when, know, was the pushy, last ti- when was the last time that you heard the head of General Electric being accused of his brusque manner or his, you know, the, a particular way that makes other people uncomfortable? I mean, it never happens. This is about men who are uncomfortable because the power structure is changing and there's somebody with a personality and an agenda and some sense of understanding where she where she lies in the hierarchy and she's going to fight for what she thinks is fairness. I guess my point, though, is I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with you, but I also think that there are there are different uh, personality styles that rub people the wrong way. I think some there could have been a different I wonder if there could have been a different woman who was in her position who would have ingratiated herself in a different way that would have been considered acceptable, you know? And so that's interesting to me, too. I mean, I'm completely a supporter of her, and I'm completely on her side, but I think it's it's interesting that her the combination of her personality and, you know, the fact that she didn't play the game the way they wanted her to play the right. game. But I think that those are things that are very much a part of how what expectations are. And I, I don't think it I think some people do make others uncomfortable. But in a particular case where a woman is coming into a very male dominated structure like The New York Times, a woman who is absolutely confident in her opinions, she may have her quirks, she may have a particular thing that irritates people. But the fact is, it's really about power and about assuming that sort of equal power and saying that, you know, my ideas are just as valuable as yours. I really think that's what's going on here. And we're really getting to a point where there are more and more women around who are not willing to accept that idea that somehow they should smooth over any rough edges and that they shouldn't be aggressive about something. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I agree. There was an article in The Atlantic that was talking about this, and it was talking about how there is just a very limited spectrum for women to be considered not bossy and not off-putting. And that... You know, women who are in positions of power tend to be perceived better if they're kind of sugarcoating it, which right. I, I hate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I hate it, too. And I'm definitely not. Um, I, I completely defend Jill Abramson. But at the same time, I think it's I'm interested in how I mean, even men with a with a certain kind of personality and style that doesn't go with what's already there uh, can be rejected. You know, like there's something about not playing the I mean, and so it's sort of like an supposedly inclusive organization that isn't as inclusive as it thinks it is, because you can only be included if you're doing things their way. I to me is an interesting story, too. I mean, uh, you know, uh, granting everything that all of you just said, it also raises the, the other question, which is 
what if she really was a terrible editor? You know, and and because that will eventually happen too. A woman will be appointed to a key job and not be good at it. And and the reactions that people have will be legitimate. I think in this case, it's very very murky. Uh, that it's. Um, you know, I feel like this is a story with a martyr, but not necessarily a hero, and lots of potential villains. Um, and and I, I'm still sorting out and still relishing, you know, each new disgorgement <laughs> of think, facts I, and details. <laughs> and, and but I'm not exactly sure where I come down on this, and I'm not entirely persuaded that she is the hero of this piece. Although I can imagine a fact pattern, which I'd be happy to lay out later in the conversation, where she absolutely is the hero. Uh, but that will involve introducing James's villain, which we haven't done yet. Um, <laughs> I think it's interesting that we don't really hear a lot in the in the articles about exactly what she did. I mean, there's the whole thing about the digital moving to digital. But um, I would like, I mean, ha, it, ha, in what way could she be a bad editor? Like the New York Times looks like it's been okay, you know, or is it that you know the kind of articles that go on the front page? Because you know that seems to be a really big thing. You know, and and the and the and the fact that the front page is still considered so crucial is what I've heard. But what else would make her? You know, is it her human interaction with the writers? Well, that seems to have come up numerous times, and certainly one of the things that is brought up over and over again was that she. Um, uh, she basically uh, now it it could be that James's villain, who we're about to meet, uh, is it, there's there's reason to suppose this is sort of as much his fault as hers, and maybe even more his fault than hers. But she introduced to uh, Dean Bacat, is that, I'm not sure how you say his name actually, uh, the the new the person who will be taking her place, but currently the managing editor of the Times, a co-managing editor. Um, but, I mean, didn't really sort of say – this was all announced at a luncheon that he was had. <laughs> but he hadn't really been informed about this in advance, this whole thing. I mean, and, and yeah. that kind of thing – I mean, wh- one thing I'll say about uh, Jill Abramson is that she has for a long time had this kind of reputation. And it may be a reputation that's horribly unfair that would never be applied to a man who did exactly the same things that she has done. But I even noticed the first day of this – Story. David Carr co-reported a, a page one piece in the New York Times, and they went to uh, Jane Mayer, who has been um, Abramson's sort of partner in a lot of investigative stuff in the past. She's now at the New Yorker, and and I wish I had the quote in front of me. But Jane Mayer basically said, you know, she has a certain kind of energy, and some people are going to like it, and some people aren't. You know, I you know I can get that. I get why some people wouldn't like it or something. And it was like reading, <laughs> you know, you know how sometimes you see the. The, the, the ad about the dog who needs to be adopted and says it needs lots of room to run or something. You're thinking, okay, I don't want that dog. I'm just trying to tell me something right now. You could certainly argue that that's exactly what the New York Times needs is somebody who's not actually part of that establishment and is actually going to be a little unpredictable and somebody who's going to perhaps do things that do make some people uncomfortable. And the issue of her being a woman is sort of woven into that. But I do think that had she been incompetent in some way, you would have heard by now some more like, like substantive stuff from people who were speaking anonymously or at least posting stuff. I mean, I think that she is clearly somebody who makes people uncomfortable. But if you look at the New York Times, I mean, the argument she made, one of, one of the fascinating things to me is about, you know, a newspaper like the New York Times with all of its sort of massive infrastructure is in a panic in some ways about how to actually continue doing what it's doing. And one of the arguments was about whether uh, the, uh, the, the, the Times should have more 
videos of reporters telling the story that they're writing about. And she dismissed it and said, you know, you can read in a flash that something that'll take you forever sitting watching a video. That's something I suddenly sat and thought, I thought that's really true. You know, yeah. I mean, I hate clicking on those videos. I actually just encountered the videos. Um, I, I was reading an article about the 9-11 memorial, and mm. they did the story, they with a lot of videos, you know, showing yeah. the exhibit and giving the backstory I of things. But I was frustrated. I found exactly that. I was incredibly frustrated going through this because I don't have the greatest attention span. And <laughs> it was taking a long time to kind of go through. And right. the videos, when you scroll down, they just start right away. They aren't, it's right. not like you are controlling, like, oh, yes, I want more information. As you read the page, the video just starts, which... Also, I found annoying, but I, I did feel that I could have just read about this and not had that visual, even in something that was right. visually interesting, like getting to see the inside of the museum. But things like that are really structurally important to the direction of an organization like a journalism uh, outfit like the New York Times. I mean, those are real arguments that they should be having that are not really, uh, you know, that this has gotten sort of lost in the whole thing about her status and also the male hierarchy and the woman no, who's... Yeah, but I mean, I, but I still think, you know, with Colin's example of her putting installing this other uh, co-editor without even telling Backhead about it in the beginning, what if she had taken him to lunch the day before and said, "This is what I'm thinking of doing. Do you agree? Are you on board? This is why I think it. I think we should do it." And in some way, found a way to make him agree before she announced it that way. That's a yeah. style. Th you know, maybe then she would have been able to get away with what she what she wanted to do. Maybe. I think what's what's pretty clear here is that you know people. In a situation like this, you don't get fired for one thing. You get fired probably for a culmination of things. And that's kind of what the New York Times is now saying in their official statements as they get pecked away at and pressured by all the people covering this. And one of the things that – one of the huge ironies that just amuses me to pieces about all this is it's clear that the New York Times didn't understand that this was going to be covered by a lot of people. Right. News organizations have the worst judgment about news organizations. <laughs> yeah, I've exactly. seen this again and again. They, first of all, think they're going to be invulnerable. Um, they think they're, they'll be immune to this kind of coverage. They also have typically a kind of arrogance about it that I, at one point, I was, you know, for the first 20 years of my career, I was full-time staff at the Hartford Current. At one point, uh, one of our new executive editors, who had come up through the ranks as a reporter and then an editor, and he got the biggest job, and in consultation, I'm sure, with the business side, put out a memo that said, uh, from now on, no one who's contacted by another member of the press can answer questions about this newspaper or anything <laughs> like that. They, it all has to go through corporate communications, blah, 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 blah. And I wrote back to him immediately. I went back immediately. I think I probably copied everybody because that's the kind of obnoxious person I was. I said, you know, do you think you could have done business in your career if all of the people that you tried to interview had this policy at their job? I said, I'm, first of all, not going to follow this policy, and then you can fire me for disobeying it and explain to the public that what this newspaper believes is that yeah. other reporters shouldn't have the kind of free access to us that we absolutely depend on having to uh, other people. But you see this again and again, and it's clear this time the New York Times never – it never occurred to them that they might have to explain this in depth. Yeah. yeah well, what happened in your story? How did they react to your email? Oh, they just said he's being an idiot again. Um, <laughs> and the whole thing went away, and then uh. the policy went away. The whole thing—I mean, it was it's just unworkable. But yeah. I, the, the, I, it is time to introduce James's villain. All right. So <laughs> one of the many things that happen, happening with the New York Times is like every legacy media organization—it's in the middle of 
disruption, as they say. And one of the things they did was bring in a new guy on the business side to run things. And one thing that is clear as you read all this stuff about Jill Abramson, and by the way, if you want to be part of this conversation, please do call very soon because we don't have too much more time, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. It is clear that Abramson is caught in a little bit of a crossfire. They brought a new business guy in to run things. He's got a whole lot of ideas about how things should happen digitally, how things, you know, even what's called native advertising, which is the advertising that kind of blends in with the digital copy. Uh, he's got all kinds of things that he wants to do. She's got to sort of run point for him on some of those ideas and also run point for the newsroom to whatever degree they don't want to do this stuff. Um, and so now, uh, James, uh, it is time for you to <laughs> describe this person who does fit into the Cherche Le Brit uh, model. Well, Mark Warder was the head of the, the director general of the British Broadcasting Corporation um, at a time when there was a big scandal developing in England, which uh, was the uh, he was kind of like a personality figure in British uh, uh, British broadcasting for probably thirty, maybe forty years, named Jimmy Savile, who was a uh, who after his death was revealed to be an incredibly prolific child molester, who uh, it, it had been doing it all the time. A lot of people had known. And it was all covered up, and there was going to be an expose on uh, on on the BBC. Uh, there was a uh, program scheduled to go, and Mark Warner nixed it. And uh, that that he, um, you know, the BBC is a sort of a strange organization. I mean, it's a taxpayer-supported organization. It has a very high reputation on some levels, but also it's very very linked to power and. Him, uh, his position coming into the New York Times, I can see it being attractive when you're trying desperately to really reinvent what the business is. What has happened, of course, is this incredible corporatization that everything has to have money sucked out of it. And if you can't suck up enough money out of it, it's, it's useless. You know? So you have to develop all of these means of like, like you know, inserting advertising into every single paragraph that you see that this is the only way that you can survive. And I think he's come in, this, this sort of agitative presence in the New York Times to do this. And I think that he doesn't have the uh, credibility uh, given his role at the BBC. And I can imagine somebody like, like uh, Jill Abramson, who actually authorized an investigative report on him, which uh, <laughs> you know sent, actually sent a reporter to England to do an investigative report on him. I'm sure that didn't go down well. There's, there's, I do have to say that when I leave this job, I really want for five years of my life to work in crisis management because I really feel, having covered so much of this stuff, that I, I sort of know how you can avoid it. And I, I, I just want to mention a few mistakes that the Times uh, made. First of all, the first mistake obviously was just the kabuki of it, right? There's a way to present all this stuff. There's a way to present all, all of it that makes it look like you're not letting – giving somebody the shaft, you know, and with Howell Reigns, for example, when he was basically kicked out of the same job for a, a, an obvious news crisis problem, too. You know, in his case, he got booted out because something was really wrong there, you know, where something had really, really gone wrong with their reporting. This is not so much the case with Abramson. But anyway, you want to get the kabuki right so it looks kind of good. You also want to define the story a certain way. You, you have to tell a story because if you don't tell any story, then everybody gets to invent their own story. And that's what's happening here. I mean, if you, you, you know, there are, there is such a blizzard of different stories now. And I mean, every single 
publication you can think of has three or four writers on the story right now <laughs> coming up with all these things. The worst story you can ever tell is the Cherche la Femme story. Any story that has a sex <laughs> and or gender angle in it, you know, it, that's the worst story because it'll go on and on and on and it inflames people and kicks tripwires. The example I give is, you know, imagine, think about the difference between Iran Condra, which is actually kind of important but nobody cared about it, and Thomas versus Hill, which was a little bit less important anyway, but everybody knew everything about Clarence Thomas and Anita Hill because, partly because that's what, it had all these tripwires that get people inflamed. So by not telling a specific story, they let this become a certain kind of story. And then I think they've been victimized by another thing that they probably can't control that much. Uh, and that is another thing that will keep a story raging is if it has lots of loose threads dangling off and interesting little details. Right. And so we've got things like the tattoo, which Carol <laughs> And will now explain to everybody. Um, and the Instagram photo uh, of Jill Abramson in boxing gloves and all these little things, which maybe the Times can't do anything about, but it ten- does tend to keep things alive. So, <clears throat> Carolyn, walk us through the tattoo. Well, I-, I first became aware of this alleged tattoo. Irene had mentioned it in an email that she had read about this, and I thought, you know, and, and she was saying, well, what's she going to do with that? The tattoo was that she had the Times T logo, a tattoo of that, allegedly. And I thought, well, you know, that's funny because that's what I do. First time I get any job, I make sure I go out and get a tattoo <laughs> with that business's logo on it. But um, so I, I just was kind of fixated on that, thinking, really? She just doesn't look like that kind of woman. And last night I was at an event, and uh, the owner of the gallery of the event I was at in Boston and his partner, uh, turns out they are uh, friends of hers. And they were just talking about this story casually in conversation to me. And I then realized, I said, I, I have to, in full disclosure, let you know something that tomorrow I'm, I'm going to be talking about this on the radio. So you might want to, you know, not. Tell me everything. Yeah. <laughs> you, you might you need to know that. But so they were really, uh, really cool about it. And I was like, so can I ask you, this tattoo, is that a real thing? And they were like, no. They're like, it is a tattoo of the uh, old Subway coins. And sure enough, when that Instagram photo leaked, which was late last night, uh, you can see it clearly is right. the Subway coin tattoo. Which is another strange story. I mean, why would you want to t- I mean, we were all sad when they got rid of tokens in the Subway, but... Why do you think she would want to, t- you know, tattoo it on her arm? Yeah, I, you know, I didn't even think to ask them of that. <laughs> what, I don't know. It looked kind of cool. I, I, yeah, I, I mean, I guess, like, as far as tattoos go, that's yeah. pretty cool. I mean, if you're, you know, a New Yorker, you want to kind of, like, immortalize yeah. something that is just not going to be uh, part of your daily life anymore. Yeah. And, and that, that well, is... the demise of tokens was some greeted with a lot of controversy, too. It was, yeah. yeah. For lots of reasons. Yeah. She also has a reason to love mass transit because she was hit by a car. Uh, yeah. Badly hit by a car as a right. pedestrian. Yeah. Um, That's a right. Big part of the Julie Abrams story. Yeah, I think it's just sort of a throwback. I love New York kind of thing. I didn't, you know. But it's sort of it's the kind of story that be, if once again you want to resolve that thing right away because I've read stories, I, you know, in pretty prestigious you know sites. They just focus on the tattoo and say, well, which, what could she turn the tattoo into <laughs> now that she hates the New York Times so much? And, and it's, you know, it's not even a New York Times tattoo. Calm down. Um, but you, can't, you, you need to get some of this toothpaste back in the tube, and that's kind of hard to do. We're going to have to uh, switch tracks here pretty soon, but uh, here's a call from someone anonymous. Hi, anonymous. And not there either. Uh, not only anonymous, but not there. 
Um, well, I I, maybe we can stop here. I really could talk about this kind of stuff all day because I really do. I think it's fascinating. And, and I do feel as though I should just say that the, the heroic storyline that I think that you can lay out, I don't know if it's true or not, is that Abramson really is a very, ser- very serious about journalism and, and you know, is getting a lot of pressure because, in fact, all these legacy news organizations, they will have to transform, and they will have to take the business side into account. And the business side people are going to be walking around the newsroom, which this guy Mark Thompson, formerly of the BBC, apparently does a lot, much more than they ever did in the past. And that Abramson is try- has been trying to build firewalls uh, between those people, or, or at least on her end, kind of see if she can neutralize things, uh, you know, with varying amounts of success. And, you know, if that's true and that's one of the, really, the things that brought her down, maybe some other stuff brought her down too. But, you know, she, well, she gets, gets some points for I, that. I, I do think that there's one thing here that obviously they have to – the newspapers and the journalism has to become aware of the business side. The question is does the journalism serve the business side, which is what is happening, and that's really sad. I mean if the business side can make the journalism possible, that's one thing. But if the journalism – and in her case, what some of the things she said imply that the journalism is under threat from the business side. That's, a, that's to me, a very serious matter. That means that you end up with a newspaper that will be nothing. And there are plenty of those around. And so, I mean, so Colin, if you were in charge of crisis management, what would you have them do? I mean, should they? it seems like they should make some kind of a statement, right? Well, first of all, they've got to make more of a statement than they have about the gen- gender pay disparity issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, they, they seem to have an actual problem there. And, and, and probably now that the numbers are out, as, as their crisis management advisor, I would say deal with the numbers. Admit the numbers and say this is – That's right. We, absolutely. We, we absolutely this, – this seems wrong to us to you – know, this is something we will – we're going to do a total reevaluation exactly. of our blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean you can say that stuff very, very easily. The other thing – I don't know how they talk about that. It's mm-hmm. because in fact they're fortunate that that's not the storyline that's really being shopped around right now. It may be shopped around more and more. Um, because one of the other things that's happening right now, also being leaked at the same time, is this going forward business plan, which I haven't really had a chance to read, but uh, except excerpts of, but a task force really looking particularly at the digital side of this operation, how are we going to survive and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's all the people at ne- uh, Neiman Journalism Lab and places like that. That's what they're crunching up right now. That'll be next week's story. Uh, anyway, we should take a break so we have time to talk about commencement speeches. That's what we'll do. And then we'll come back. The Atlantic seemed to cold and to dark And I don't want to go back to those New York times Cause I have seen it all before No, I don't want to go back to those New York times It's not who I am anymore All right, so WBUR has just tweeted that Jill Abramson will not be doing the commencement at Brandeis. Um, So that just feeds right into our next topic here, which is that what happens, uh, what's been happening with commencement speakers. We're coming into that time of year where students gather in cap and gown on the greens of many colleges and universities around the U.S. and then don't listen to someone talk. Um, (laughs) And uh, but the question is, who is doing that talking? So in a couple of cases that that person has backed out in the case of Rutgers, it was a former secretary of state, 
Condoleezza Rice. Um, and in the case of Smith College, uh, it was uh, the head of the International Monetary Fund, Christine Lagarde. In each case, there was some pushback from the student body because the student body usually, although I'm sure there are egalitarian colleges where, that are different, but usually they don't, they don't invite the speaker. Um, the speaker is invited by the board of trustees or the president or, or whoever. And sometimes uh, the, people don't, the people who are going to be graduating have a problem with that. That's what happened at Rutgers. There were sit-ins and demonstrations and breaking glass and all kinds of unrest. Uh, and so Condoleezza Rice on her own decided that she would uh, withdraw uh, without really the support of uh, the Rutgers president who was prepared to go ahead uh, breaking glass and be damned. Uh, now, with Christine Lagarde, it's a little less clear exactly what's going on at Smith College, but clearly the students were not crazy about having the International Monetary Fund director there, and so she's also pulled out. There's some other examples of that as well. We'd love to hear. Once again, if you're interested in this topic, do call us now, not later, because later we won't be talking about it. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I'm trying to think where we should begin. We should begin with Irene, I think. Okay, well... I would have loved to see Christine Lagarde give a what's her name Chris, Christine yeah, Christine, Christine, Christine Lagarde yeah. give a speech you know and I think um, I, I'm the kind of person you know I love activism and protests and you know speaking out against the policies of your college or university you know but on this issue I feel you know in a way it's a question of can the person give a good speech or not. You know, not necessarily do you agree with their views. I mean, it seems like Christine Lagarde has such an interesting story to tell about her own life as a business person, a woman who really ascended to the top of the world of business, uh, that I would be curious to hear. Uh, and um, so I, I, I wonder why that, you know, why that is a form of expression of your ideas and not so many other things, like looking at what you're university or college's investments involve and et cetera, et cetera. Those protests seem a little to make a little bit more sense to me than protesting something like that. All right. Well, I knew that I could count on James uh, to have at least a more protest friendly um, <laughs> view of this whole thing. Well, I mean, I do feel that, you know, I, I think that protests about things can get people's attention in a way that, you know, the point has been made that, that with commencement speakers, often the students are really not listening and it's not a big deal. So actually, it's it's often uh, sort of an echo chamber there that doesn't really mean anything, but externally it means something. So the symbolism of inviting a certain person, like, uh, I think particularly, um, you know, when somebody is uh, has an identification with something that's particularly provocative, somebody who wants to limit rights or somebody who is um, uh, making some sort of demeaning, uh, making a career out of demeaning people in some way, that that person is inviting attention of, uh, that if they get invited to be a speaker at a university or a college, then there should be a lot of noise. And I mean, I, I can certainly think that... Um, you know, much as the college or university might not like it, that a demonstration by the students at the commencement is actually better in some ways in terms of coverage and getting something to happen rather than the fact of somebody pulling out or being disinvited. Because if, they, if that's the case, then the other people get to make the case, oh, they were silenced. There are times when people deserve to be silenced by noise, I think, that that, that you can certainly have a demonstration that shouts people down. I mean, supposing you do have somebody saying that, okay, you know, actually black people had it better under slavery and they actually get onto a podium and actually say something. I mean, it, they deserve to be uh, to to be verbally assaulted about this, to be to to have to deal with that. 
And so bringing it out into the open with a protest like that, I think, is a good thing. In the case of Christine Lagarde, I think that's actually an unfortunate case because she is a person who has an interesting history in terms of combating the status quo. Yeah. But nevertheless, a lot of people are upset about the fact that she's head of an organization which certainly has been criticized heavily for the way that it has you know, held women down, essentially, uh, around the world with its policies. And so it's not just about the figure. It's about the symbolism of her being the head of this organization. That said, I think it's remarkable that she does have a chance to change that organization. And so hearing what she has to say, uh, th there's a case to be made for that. Well, I think we all agree it was a good idea of Swarthmore to cancel Clavin Bundy's graduation speech. That, was, <laughs> that never would have worked. But, I mean, yeah. you know, in the case, case of Lagarde and Rice, and I think in Lagarde in particular, it's, I'm kind of intrigued, they withdrew. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, nobody said you can't. Well, some people were saying we don't want to. But they withdrew. They made the choice to withdraw, which I think is kind of unfortunate, too. I mean, I would I think you and I agree about this to the, to that extent. Anyway, I'd much rather see them come give the speech, have your protest, have, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, occupy Northampton, <laughs> sit in somewhere where you have a big uh -huh. conversation about it too. you know, have a dialogue. I, that all sounds great to me. The. the the thing where the speaker slinks away for whatever reason, I don't like so much. They just don't want to deal with protests. Yeah. 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 It was just the fear of having to face that or, you know, not wanting to. Who wants to go and be a speaker where you're not welcome? Like, that doesn't sound like a great. Well, but you should well, stand up for your, you know, if you're actually you were, during, during the Vietnam War, there were a number of a lot of instances like that. I mean, a lot of people did. They, I mean, they, they, they were, you know, look at um, uh, the people like Spiro Agnew, for example. I mean, he 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 relished actually coming on and saying these provocative things and 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 trashing young people who were very sincerely protesting. I mean, he, he made a thing of that and made a career of it. And uh, I think that that's uh, that there are people like that. But I do think that um, if you're inviting somebody to speak, I mean, you, as you, the point you made, Colin, is that that you know it's usually the trustees who invite the person to speak. I think actually students should really decide who gets invited to speak. And I think that if there is a disagreement or is inviting somebody provocative, then have a fight about it beforehand. Absolutely. Bring it out into the open. Well, yeah, that's when the interesting fight happens, yeah. before yes, you make exactly. the decision and the invitation. And yeah. at the end of the day, it's a commencement speech. I mean, this is not necessarily <laughs> maybe the forum to be provocative. You're, you're there at a, yeah. at, at, at a commencement where you're celebrating yeah. Graduates who, like I, I, like I said, they're. I mean, most of the kids aren't listening. Not I listening, remember right, my right. college graduation. We had Edward, Edward Albee. I was a theater major, <laughs> so I was, you know, I should have been all, all up in that. But instead, I was sitting there getting a sunburn, like texting, you know, <laughs> <laughs> fantasizing about what I'm going to do over the summer and what will the rest of my life be. I didn't. I love the idea that you word. could text at your graduation. I think we were <laughs> we were waving our we were waving our quills around. I think that was like, um, but it's so hard to give a good graduation speech. You know, I mean, I think having listened to quite a few of them now, as a faculty member in the audience, I just feel like it's if somebody can give a good speech, I don't care what their politics are. You know, I, I want to hear I've a good speech. I've given many graduation speeches. It's been a few you years have? since I did one. Yeah, both at the oh. high school and the college level. Mm. Um, and but let me just say this: one possible solution that a lot of colleges seem to adopt is 
you know, either to place it in the hands of the students or just do something really, really student-friendly. So even Smith College, I think last year it was Rachel Maddow. Well, everybody's going to like Rachel Maddow. The year before that, it was Jane Lynch, which, and she apparently gave a great speech, and everybody likes Jane Lynch. How's, you know, how's Jane Lynch not going to be a hit, a hit in Northampton? You know, I mean, MIT had the Maliazzi brothers, the car talk guys, come and give a really? speech. Uh, <laughs> and that, that raises another point, too, which is like this whole fuss over Condoleezza Rice. I don't know if anybody's really listened to speeches of hers, but she's an incredible bore. She manages yeah. to prattle and prattle and talk and not say anything. I think that it's remarkable her career and what she achieved in her life, but a speaker or an ins- of any kind of inspiration, she is not. And that's a, true for any speech. You know, I hate it when people give speeches that don't in- acknowledge their audience. You know, if you're yeah, giving a yeah. speech to to people like Carolyn who sit, who are sitting there dreaming about their future, you know, right. what are you going to say? You know, you, I think you should make you it have quick to and make it funny. Make, make contact. Right. Yeah. Kimberly, you wouldn't, you wouldn't listen to Edward Albee. However, <laughs> I should say Thomas Hoving was my high school graduation speech speaker, and I don't listen to him. And I should have listened to Thomas Hoving. So I feel bad about that. But I, the one thing that I do want to say is that. You know, first of all, anybody can give a substantive, interesting speech. I've been told that the year after U.S. Senator Barack Obama spoke at Northwestern, the, the next year's speaker was Julia Louis-Dreyfus, um, who has, of course, <laughs> gone on to be vice president of the United States. But, but this was well before that. And she sort of came out and make a, made a little joke about who she was following and then apparently gave a fabulous speech about life and art. And, I mean, you don't know who's going to give a great speech. Right. But I also, I also don't think that it's true that a graduation speech can't be substantive. I mean, the Marshall Plan was announced in a commencement address. <laughs> um, you know, I so, mean, and, and Emerson made you know, sp- commencement speeches that became undying pieces of American literature. So that should be the criteria. Somebody who's going to do their, like you just kind of know that Julia Louis-Dreyfus would do her homework mm-hmm. and write a yeah. really good yeah. speech yeah. that was really geared toward the audience. You know, it seems like the problem is people that just have some canned thing that they say and they're not thinking about who they're talking to that, you know, don't do their homework, and it's not very interesting. Right. That's a good All point. Right. Yeah, I agree. It's the last thing anybody wants to think about our commencement day is homework. All right. <laughs> we should probably stop here take a break. When we come back, it'll be time for endorsements. Well, we'll have ample time for endorsements. Always, always graduation day. We'll remember What worries me is that the New York Times is too caught up in its own drama. What if a really big story breaks in New York right now? Would they even be ready to cover it? Godzilla! Come to think of it, Godzilla would make a great commencement speaker. No political baggage and a really short speech. That's it. Go get your diplomas. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Josh Nalaya. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Brian Cranston. For show pages, articles, and audio of the Faith Middleton Show staff going... Visit our website, WNPR.org. On Monday, Bob Garfield visits the Scramble, and we'll talk to an epidemiologist about MERS. And now, back to Colin. We had a very interesting conversation, Kai and Wolf and I, today you know, over by the coffee machine about how that was going to work. 
<laughs> and it worked even better than I hoped it would. Uh, all right, so I just want to go see Godzilla right now. I'm very excited by it. Uh, just uh, to sort of wrap up the conversation we just had, Jennifer tweets to us, uh, New York uh, Governor, Governor George Pataki spoke at my Colgate University graduation. He said how, gr- how glad he was to be at Cornell that day. And then she tweets the next year Bill Cosby spoke. He had done his homework, read about the error, and it was great. Uh, Allison tweets, Ben Stein spoke at Ithaca College in 2005. We were mostly in shock that a conservative had been elected, selected as our graduation speaker. All right, so I'm going to violate the rule that says that once we've moved on, we've moved on. Uh, Brian, you have a quick comment for us about this. Yeah, I think that one of the complications about all of this is that professional speakers are doing two things, right? One, they're, they're supposed to give something motivational and informational to the, to the students and the parents. But the other thing is that they're also receiving an honorary doctorate from the school. And in, in some sense, it's that second element, right, that, that causes the confusion. Because that school is saying that they've accomplished something worth getting a doctorate from that institution. Great. And, and this is the real complicated part, right? Because if you don't feel that that person represents your values, then it goes beyond simply saying, oh, they have something interesting to say. I should sit and listen to it. Yeah, great point. Great point. Um, we have to move on to endorsements, however, but that is a great point. Um, so, so that means Dr. We... Godzilla? Yeah, Dr. Godzilla. Yeah, I don't see. Any, I have no problem with him getting an honorary doctorate. Honorary do- doctorates are strange, are odd. I don't really quite understand them. Anything uh, yeah. that might cheer Godzilla up, I think is I a think good I, idea. Yeah, Godzilla. Um, <laughs> maybe that's all he wants. You know, It'll go away. All right, what have you got to endorse? Um, I'm just reading this novel that I think is really good. I've, I've only I'm only into the beginning of it. It's called Americana. By um, the No, no. <laughs> American Americana with an H, mm. um, by a Nigerian. American woman who divides her time between Nigeria and the U.S. Um, name, her last name is Adichie, A-D-I-C-H-I-E. And, um, but it's really an interesting. It starts out in Princeton, and she's, it's sort of like a view of white people and white culture. It's about race in the United States in, with, with a very, she has very interesting insights, and it's written in a way that just kind of, it's like a delicious meal. Like you just want to keep going. It's really good and really interesting. Oh, fabulous. Say the name again? Americana. Okay. But with an H in there. With an H. All right. So, uh, James, what have you got to endorse? Well, if you've absorbed the intellectual and sort of incredibly complex but fascinating stories in uh, uh, Thomas Piketty's uh, uh, analysis of capitalism that I've been keeping on reminding people, there's another book. Uh, Matt Taibbi has a book called Divide, which is a really amazing book uh, that is sort of down in the streets kind of reporters. Look, you know, we've been talking about the New York Times and Matt Taibbi is a reporter who, you, he, the stories he tells, you can tell that he really went out in the street. He really went and talked to people. And talking about the economic divide, not just in this country, but around the world and the whole nature of how everything is different, wealth makes uh, the world entirely different for you in terms of law enforcement, in terms of education, in terms of life in every way. Um, it's an incredible read, uh, Matt Taibbi's Divide. And the other thing is um, Orson Welles' Othello, which we're playing at Sydney Studio uh, Sunday through Thursday evening, which is a really mysterious and sort of strange Othello, but absolutely amazing. Uh, 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 Orson Welles is really at his peak, really amazing. That sounds fabulous. All right, uh, Carolyn Payne, what have you got for us? I am endorsing my uh, best friend from childhood who is living with HIV. He is also a writer and director and actor, is in the process of creating a really unique web series called Unsure Positive. And I encourage everyone to check it out and um, get, get on board with this. And he's also just creating an online community about this. 
uh, when he was first diagnosed, he felt very isolated. And uh, his one of his goals with this is to help people who are living with HIV feel less isolated and to see the, that life goes on. Uh, it's not necessarily the death sentence. And one of his ways of doing this is actually this uh, web series, Unsure Positive, is in fact a comedy. And I, it seems, you know, is it one of those things that you really should be laughing at? And he does a wonderful job at creating that. And I am so proud of him. And uh, I was helping him with a fundraiser for this, for uh, the web series and everything last night. And I think that everyone should check this out and start looking at some things in life with a little bit more laughter. That sounds, that sounds fabulous. I'm going to endorse a, a writer who has not produced anything uh, in quite a long time, and I was astonished to find out that at the age of 89 he's still alive. His name is Thomas Berger, and here's uh, why I'm endorsing him, because there's this movie out called Neighbors, uh, which is turning into something of a hit. And I just kind of assumed it was a remake of the Belushi-Ackroyd uh, movie Neighbors, which was a faulty adaptation of Thomas Berger's kind of amazing book, um, Neighbors. And and so I would endorse that book. Uh, Thomas Berger is best known as the guy who wrote Little Big Man. Uh, also made it to a movie. Uh, but he wrote in the 70s and 80s a whole series of really interesting books, and, and, but also sort of refused to play the literary game. I mean, he really could arguably, arguably, based on some of his output, been ranked up there with some of the big giants of that time. But, you know, rather than become sort of there's a whole bunch of writers like this who they weren't Philip Roth, they weren't Saul Bellow, they weren't Don DeLillo, they weren't Thomas Pynchon, but they were really, really good writers. And, and in Berger's case, I mean, he refused ever, ever to go near the New York literary scene. He just wasn't going to be there at the table at Elaine's next to George Plimpton and Kurt Vonnegut. But he's a, a lot of his work is really good. And there's some obscure Thomas Berger books that are worth tracking down. One that I think holds up reasonably well is Arthur Rex, his very modern retelling of the uh, King Arthur story. So I'm going to endorse Thomas Berger, even though this new movie that's out right now has nothing to do with Thomas Berger. And I'm glad to find out he's still alive. There's a great piece on the New York Times website. You have to dig it up. Jonathan Lethem, Jonathan Lethem, the very young, very talented novelist, apparently Thomas Berger is one of his heroes. So he just started writing to Thomas Berger, and, and Thomas Berger started writing back. And it, it's I, I won't spoil it, but it has some some interesting little nubbins in there about that. Also, since I have a little extra time, I will endorse one very lowbrow thing. Uh, I've occasionally mentioned the ABC series Nashville, which, I mean, I don't even like country music that much, but this has made me like country music more. Uh, it is a ridiculous soap opera, but because of the involvement of T-Bone Burnett and a bunch of other really good, strong musicians, they, the musical part of it just gets better and better. So on YouTube right now, you can find something called Nashville on the Record, which is a concert that the actors staged. The actors got good enough at country music to do uh, a, a performance altogether live, and it's really it's a tremendous performance. I would especially there's a trio that has emerged on the show. They've got a song called "I Ain't Leaving Without Your Love." I especially recommend "I Ain't Leaving Without Your Love." We are leaving with or without your love, but we do send our love out to our panelists. That's Irene Papoulis, James Hanley, and Carolyn Payne. We'll be back on Monday. I'm Kyone Wolf, and I've got one piece of advice for you graduates. In this life, you really want to shake things up whenever you can. So if someone calls the cops on you, go ahead and arrest the police. Everybody will have a great laugh, and you'll have one more chapter for your ebook memoir. Thank you, and congratulations. <laughs>